0: So, it's been four months since the last episode. I wish I could say this was part of a planned hiatus with meaningful intent, but it wasn't. In the Zero episode of this program, I mentioned that I was only qualified as a presenter of information, maybe at best a temporarily useful explainer. I'd like to re-emphasize that point, and quash any kind of thinking that I myself am some sort of personal role model or that I possess any wisdom, though fortunately I'm pretty confident that no one thought that. I need the advice, given in this show as much as anyone, maybe more. For that reason, I strangely consider myself part of the audience for this program, and have missed it as much as you have, assuming you did miss it. In April, my wife was in a car accident, thankfully at very low speeds and no one was physically hurt. However, insurance and state law became very relevant, and complications developed quickly, alongside the mysterious decline in health of a pet and job-related uncertainty after the completion of a contract. I missed making and releasing the second episode for April because of the ensuing difficulties. This resulted in a dip in motivation that started as an excuse to avoid just one more week of production. It turned into a willfully lazy May where I ignored producing the show and ended as a deeply depressive June where I experienced the worst creative drought of my entire life. Nothing worked, and for someone like me whose creative output is basically tied on a one-to-one ratio with my overall happiness, it was pretty rough. There's a line from a Simon and Garfunkel song called uh, Homeward Bound. That has haunted me my whole life and returns whenever my work dries up. It says, but all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony. I could barely force myself to do anything creative for any of my clients, much less a voluntary program like this. And anything I did manage to crank out through raw discipline was blatantly banal. But finally, in July, I made a breakthrough and wrote a 20-page short story that at long last brought water from the pump again. It took me the rest of the month to fully recover, produce an audiobook version of the story, and get back on track with missed deadlines and late projects. And then I got sick. Or rather, again. I was sick for two full weeks in June, and then another week in August after which I had the incredible opportunity, by way of my friend Genjo, who was the first person interviewed on this show, to stay for four days at the Great Vow Zen Monastery in Oregon and live with the monks there in monastic practice. I could spend hours talking about that experience, but I won't. Instead, I'll simply say that it was deeply enriching and that when it was finally over, I finally felt like myself again. And that was just in time to begin teaching at a new school, where I am responsible for more classes with younger students and more unique subjects than I've ever done before, and with much less prep time to do it. During the first two weeks of school I worked so hard I managed to get sick again at the start of September, until finally you have the very unconventional episode in front of you. But Modernist Monastery is back, and it's back with new, beautiful artwork created by an artificial intelligence, like the last one, but much better, and it's something I think is uniquely appropriate for this program. A new, beautiful theme, composed and performed on cello by a human, namely my wife, and a new production schedule, though I wouldn't call that part beautiful. In truth, at the moment, I can only handle producing about one episode a month of this show, though I would truly love nothing better than to make more. But every month, you can count on at least one episode, and perhaps bonus episodes of Cloister Conversations, since those are much easier to make. The show also has merchandise now, which is completely surreal to me, and which you can find on TeePublic by searching Modernist Monastery. That's TeePublic searching Modernist Monastery. T-shirts, hoodies, laptop stickers, and mugs, all brought to you by Ruminations Radio, the network that allows this program life and which was very patient with me in my absence. As a nod to them, this episode, which will have a more personal tone, is essentially my formalized thoughts and ruminations on some of the lessons I learned during the last four months, run through the format of a Modernist Monastery episode. So once again, and most sincerely... Welcome to the modernist monastery. The story you are about to hear comes from the tens of thousands of stories within the overwhelmingly diverse Hindu tradition. The story itself is one of the most well-known and popular, but that's probably perfect if you've never heard a story from this part of the spiritual landscape. This tale contains five characters—Shiva, Parvati, Ganesha, Karthikeya, and Narada. The first four are among the many deities venerated in the Hindu tradition, with the fifth, Narada, being a great sage. Whole books have been filled with the other stories of each one of these characters, and I couldn't possibly relate even a one-hundredth of them here. For today's purposes, just know that Shiva and Parvati are the central and supreme deities within the story, with Ganesha and Karthikeya being two of their children. So sit back, open your mind to the imagery of the story, and listen. Lord Shiva and the goddess Parvati lived on Mount Kailas with their children Ganesha and Karthikeya. Both children were strong, brave, caring, and dutiful, loved by all. Karthikeya was a very handsome boy with strong limbs, while Ganesha was pot-bellied with short, stubby legs and the head of an elephant. Karthikeya used the swift peacock as his steed, while Ganesha's was a mouse. Once, Sage Narada came to Mount Kailas to pay his respects to Lord Shiva and Parvati. He also wished to test the brothers to find out who was the more intelligent of the two. He presented a beautiful mango to them. Extolling the fruit, he said that his father, Lord Brahma, had given it to him. And it had extraordinary powers. But he felt that Lord Shiva would be more worthy of the fruit, and hence brought it to him. Lord Shiva smiled and offered it to Parvati, who said that since she had merged herself into her husband Shiva, she had no greater need, and so they should gift it to their children. When Ganesha and Karthikeya saw the mango, both of them rushed to claim it, but Narada informed them that it had special powers and could not be shared. In order to solve the problem, Narada proposed a test, and the winner could claim the fruit. Addressing the sons, he said that the one who went around the three worlds of heaven, earth, and nether and returned first would be declared the winner and would get the fruit. The race began, and Karthikeya mounted his peacock and without wasting even a second, sped off into the sky. Meanwhile, Ganesha's mouse got ready to depart, but Ganesha was lost in thought. He realized that Lord Shiva was the ruler of the universe, and that Parvati represented his power. Since everything originated from them, it was not necessary to go around the three worlds. So, saying this, he bowed before his parents and simply walked around them instead. Pleased with his intelligence, Narada, along with Lord Shiva and Parvati, blessed him and rewarded him with the fruit. In some versions of the story, it is said that such was Ganesha's love and humility that when his brother returned, Ganesha offered him the mango anyway. The circumference of our planet is 24,901 miles. If it were possible for you to walk across water and you walked for eight hours every day, it would take you just over a thousand to make it back to where you started. If you were in a standard jet plane, it would take you fifty hours. But to walk across your home, whether it be one of the famous modern tiny houses or a luxurious manor, would take you anywhere between a few seconds and a few minutes at most. In my case, I made it from one side of my apartment to the other in a casual ten seconds. And yet, I spend more time in my home than anywhere else. Most likely, you do too. Assuming you get roughly eight hours of sleep and work for another eight, then that leaves approximately eight hours left in your day. Statistically, four to six of those hours will be in your home in addition to whatever time you spend sleeping there. Even if you consider the wider village, town, or city in which you live, you can likely drive from one side to the other in a few hours at most. While THE world may be vast, OUR world, or rather the portion of THE world which is ours, is extremely small. We will spend the extreme majority of the hours of our lives in an extreme minority of the places. Even accounting for travel and exploration, friends who are thousands of miles away can be called, texted, or otherwise contacted in seconds. Thus, the story you just heard is as applicable and wise today as it was 2,000 years ago. To go around your world and get the fruit is better than going around the world and missing it, and for our purposes, the fruit is fulfillment in life. We like to think of the commonplace and everyday as being unimportant. The word we use for it is mundane. But as we've said more than once on this program, the trick is finding the profound within the mundane. Here is an example. Think of the first thirty seconds that elapse every time you walk into your home. Assuming you only enter your home one time each day after leaving in the morning, Those 30 seconds will add up to 91 hours each year. Between the ages of 25 and 75, that will add up to 190 days' worth of time. Think of what those 30 seconds are like. Are you greeted by anyone, even a dog? If so, is the dog well-behaved, or does it jump and scratch you because it's too excited? Or if you have a partner or children already home? Do they greet you? How do they do it? Or if you are the one home first, how do you greet whoever comes in? Even if you live alone, how does your house smell when you walk into it? What's the temperature? What does the entrance to your home look like? Imagine what walking into your home could be like every day if it was as happifying as it could be. What if you spent effort—real— effort and negotiation to make the first 30 seconds of your entrance into your home as pleasant as possible. You got an air freshener, hung tasteful art in the entranceway, had a nice welcome mat, trained your dog not to jump, made it a tradition for whoever is home first to come running to greet the other person. If you have technology that interfaces with your home, set timers so the temperature is just like you like it or the lights turn on by themselves, or familiar music is already playing. This may sound like a lot of effort, but would it be worth it? Consider this. Vast quantities of your life are largely characterized by the things you do over and over again. So why not pay more attention to them? Why not do them well? How many 30-second increments of your life can you make as good as they can possibly be. Succeeding to make only two such increments happy will add up to one happy year of collected time in your life over a fifty-year period. Or in other words, if you can maximize the pleasantness of two mundane minutes each day, you will ensure that two years of your life are happy years. This is even more worth it when you consider that the average lifespan in the U.S. means you will only be alive for around 692,000 hours and you'll spend one-third of them sleeping. So pick something uninspiring and make it better. Perfect a 30-second increment of your day. And watch what happens. There is a Japanese word called kaizen, which means continuous improvement. It's the notion that making small, incremental changes over time leads to the most monumental and sustainable form of change. This idea of Kaizen was implemented, perhaps most notably in the West, by Sir Dave Brailsford in the UK, who, since 2003, was hired to coach the National Bicycle Team of Great Britain a team which had been so poorly rated over the course of nearly a century that certain bike manufacturers actually refused to sell their models to the british team unlike previous coaches who tried wide-scale groundbreaking turnarounds sir brailsford committed to what he called quote the aggregation of marginal gains or kaizen this involved the implementation of tiny improvements everywhere, which necessitated constantly measuring key statistics and addressing identifiable weaknesses. The result is that in the last twenty years, the UK team has won the Tour de France six times and has won more Olympic gold medals for cycling in the last four Olympics than any other nation. They did it with cycling, and we can do it in everything in our own lives including how we use our time. Even just 30 seconds. But how can one identify such increments? They are so small that sometimes we don't even think of them. And how can we possibly keep track of more than just a few? Allow me to suggest an activity you will find deeply tedious, and then highly illuminating. It was suggested to me by an old mentor who once served in the Green Beret Special Forces, and I was astonished by the results. Create a spreadsheet, digitally or on paper. I recommend creating it on a cell phone if you have one, so you can fill it out wherever you are. Subdivide your 24-hour day into 10-minute increments. Yes, 10 minutes. 144 10-minute sections. Though you can remove 48 of them by just saying sleep assuming you do get 8 hours of sleep per day. But that is not to denigrate sleep to an item of unimportance. But for now, choose an average day, one that represents as much as possible what a normal twenty-four hours is for you. Now go through your day, perhaps filling things in as you go once every hour or so, what you did during the last few ten-minute slots. If you spent twenty minutes getting to work, put driving for two slots. You don't need to be hyper-specific, noting each tiny activity, but if it takes you thirty minutes to get dressed and ready in the morning, then fill three slots in with getting ready for the day. At work, you can subdivide by tasks you do if you want, but that's not completely necessary. A little generality is fine, for now. Once you've gone through a whole day, sit down and look at what you find. For myself, I was horrified. how much time I spent driving in the car. You may discover something else, perhaps realizing how much time you spend staring at your phone, or how much time on a particular app, or how much time you spend doing absolutely nothing, and not in the sense of physically relaxing, but in the way of doing something that brings no value—the time equivalent of empty calories in food. Now go through those time slots. And start to see where you're spending time that you yourself would rather be used for other things, or if not, how those spaces might be maximized. Suddenly inside those little 10-minute spots, you'll see all sorts of things you might want to change or be inspired to maximize to perfect. Again, think of how good something specific might be if it was made as good as it could possibly be. Walking into your house might be really, really good. And if this feels like an exhausting effort, pick one thing and work on that. If it helps, manage your time with it, too. For example, look at whatever room you're in, or if you're in your car, think of that. Think of what you could do To make that place look and feel nicer in 5 minutes. Move some trash, clear a counter, vacuum a mat. Now think of what you could do if you had 10 minutes, then 15, then an hour. Expand the space out to something larger if you need to, and think about how nice the space could be in however long if you actually spent that time making it nicer. Now set a timer, and do it. Do it again tomorrow, and again, and again. Set an alarm to remember. Just five minutes. Maybe just thirty seconds. And so, to close this episode, here's a small list of mundane things you might try making profound. Your shower, both the space and the routine. The last minutes before you get in bed, the first minutes when you wake up, arriving to your office, getting in your car, eating breakfast, doing your hair, doing your makeup if that's something you do, getting dressed. For example, are your clothes folded? Are they easy to access? These questions, and ones like them, can turn anything mundane into a serious undertaking. But it can be done. And as I said at the ending of this show's first episode, large doors turn on small hinges. I'm Dean Delp, and this has been Maximizing the Mundane on the Modernist Monastery.